0: I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. This week on Moyers & Company, more from Ian Haney-Lopez on Doll of Politics.
1: One of the central dynamics in American politics since the civil rights era has been the use of cultural provocations, primary among them race, but not exclusively, to try and advance a conservative agenda that favors tax cuts for the rich and that favors a deregulation of, of big industry. Democrats have understood, even as early as 1970. Race was going to be an effective wedge issue against them. And when the Democrats responded, they responded not by contesting that politics, but instead by embracing it. And and this is part of the story of dog whistle politics Republicans shift right, and the Democrats have tracked rightward following them.
0: Thanks for joining us. Welcome. We're back with the scholar Ian Haney Lopez talking about his important new book, Dog Whistle Politics. Last week he told us that racism is still very much a part of our society, but more often than not today it hides behind code words with messages that manipulate deep prejudice to rouse hostility against minorities in the government and summon support for policies that make economic inequality even worse. This racist strategy, as Lopez calls it, favors a devious plutocracy that bankrolls the dog whistlers and destroys everyone else beneath no matter the color of their skin. Here's some of what he said last time. Dog whistle
1: politics doesn't come out of animus at all. It doesn't come out of some desire to hurt minorities. It comes out of a desire to win votes. And and, and here's a hard, difficult truth. Most racists are good people. They're not sick. They're not ruled by uh, anger or raw emotion or hatred. They are complicated people, reared in complicated societies, they're fully capable of generosity, of empathy, of real kindness, but because of the idea systems in which they're reared, they're also capable of dehumanizing others and occasionally of brutal violence. And, and, and that's an important truth. Most people are not racist out of a, some sort of a sickness of the soul. They're racist because of the society in which they operate.
0: Ian Haney Lopez is now a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a senior fellow at the think tank Demos. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Here we are, early in 2014, heading toward an election where every member of the House of Representatives will be elected, one third of the Senate, and scores of governors. Can you hear the dog whistle even as we speak for this election? You absolutely hear
1: the dog whistle. And And I think the one that's getting the most attention is food stamps. Why all the agitation around food stamps? Are, for goodness sake, people are hungry. We're in the midst of a recession. There hasn't been a recovery for the broad middle. Why would we cut off food stamps now? We cut off food stamps because it's part of this old rhetoric that food stamps is for undeserving minorities and that, and that this is part of a symbol of government gone amok. That's one of the minor dog whistles. Here's the major one. Obamacare. Mm. Ostensibly, this is about health care, but really it's about Obama and government policy. Now, Obama himself has been subject to a lot of dog whistling, that he's foreign-born, not a citizen, a Muslim. What's happening with the term Obamacare is all of these insinuations are being attached to a government policy. The most recent one, Obamacare makes you lazy. Now, ostensibly, this is because if you finally have health insurance, maybe you don't have to work that second job. But conservatives have turned it around and said this is about making you lazy. And lazy, of course, is one of these racial code words for, for, for minorities. So every time they talk about the Affordable Care Act, they're going to use that term Obamacare. And the subtext is, here comes a black man who exemplifies the way in which the federal government is now by and for minorities. Don't trust the federal government. Don't let this into your household. Vote for politicians who promise to rein in the federal government when in fact, what they're going to do is give more tax cuts to the very
0: rich. So, what are the stakes here?
1: The Republicans have a real stake in proving that government can't work. They need voters to be hostile to federal government, to see government as the enemy, because that's the only way voters will support politics that actually give control of government back over to big money.
0: So, the flawed startup played right into that uh, that that idea.
1: The flawed startup played into it. Government
0: doesn't work. Liberal exactly. governments t- can't do it. Can't more than deliver.
1: that, more than that, Obama's incompetent. That had been a conservative frame for a long time, but it was absurd. It just didn't seem to match up with this cool, com- composed, and sophisticated, incredibly competent individual. But as soon as the government startup fumbled, that racial stereotype of incompetence could be attached to Obama again. And here's the other one that was attached Remember Joe Wilson when he interrupted Obama? He says, you lie. Now, a lot of people said, well, that was a terrible breach of decorum, but, very, but, but fewer people noted that's also in an old stereotype, a stereotype of black mendacity. That you can't trust blacks. They're always lying and cheating and yeah. stealing. Okay, that racial frame had very little traction, except after the startup, when it became one of the core themes that Republicans used to say, he promised you could keep your insurance and now you've lost it. Obama lies. So these two old stereotypes of incompetence and of mendacity have been attached to Obama and have been attached to Obamacare. So unfortunately, yes, the fumbled startup gave a lot of ammunition to this sort of dog whistling around Obama and the Affordable Care Act.
0: What happens if you look at the Tea Party through the lens of dog whistling?
1: Two comments I want to say about this. First, I want to go back to this idea that... that most racists are good people because I think that this is incredibly important as we think about the Tea Party. Who are Tea Partiers? A lot of liberals have said terrible things about Tea Partiers, describing them as narrow-minded bigots and whatnot. I think that's absurd. I think the Tea Partiers are in a sense, they're us, they're our constituency, they're Americans who are struggling, who are trying to figure out what happened to their jobs, who are trying to figure out what to do about health care. They're in trouble. They're really hurting like so many, so many Americans. Now, in order to understand what happened, the Tea Partiers have accepted the conservative line that what has happened in their lives is the, really the fault of minorities. So, when you look at what animates the Tea Party, there are several different hatreds that are core to the Tea Party. They hate welfare, especially or particularly welfare that's understood as going to minorities, not Social Security, for instance, but rather food stamps. Next. They're, they're obsessed about Muslims and Islam, and they really see this sort of threatening, this external threat uh, in, the, in the form of the Middle really? East, but also ostensibly an internal threat of Muslims coming into the United States. For example, this is Kansas passing its law that, that there shan't be uh, Sharia law in the courts of Kansas. Absurd, except as it triggers this racial fear. Next, they're deeply concerned about undocumented immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants from Mexico. Finally. They hate President Obama, and Obama seems to combine um, both this sense of, uh, uh, of, of welfare, of, of, of being a Muslim, uh, of being a, a brown, foreign other, right? So, so all of these fears that animate the Tea Party movement at the grassroots level, these are racial narratives. They're racial narratives that say to people, if you want to understand what went wrong in your life, if you want to understand what went wrong in America, blame minorities
0: sort of a bait-and-switch, you know, the issue's not really race, the issue is limited government. Absolutely.
1: So think about what a lot of Republicans uh, are actually doing in terms of their policies. In terms of their policies, they say they're for limited government, but in fact what they're doing is giving over control of the regulatory state to corporations. They say they want to shrink the federal deficit, but in fact they're spending massive amounts of money either in tax cuts for the very rich, Or in big subsidies that go to corporations. For example, the farm bill that was recently enacted. Now, you can't get elected going to the American public and saying, I want to cut your funding for your schools. I want to cut funding for your Social Security. I want to cut your pensions. And I want to shower all that money on the very rich. We can't get elected that way. But you can get elected going to the American public saying, we're in mortal danger as a country because something has gone terribly wrong with our society. We see it in religion. We see it around gender. We see it around abortion. We see it around same-sex marriage. And we certainly see it in terms of welfare and criminals and illegal aliens. So that's the language that a very extreme wing of the conservative, of conservatives has been using to skew American politics but also to take over the Republican Party. Republicans from 30, 40 years ago would not recognize what the party is today.
0: It used to be that Democrats were the arch segregationist and racist, and the and the dog whistlers, and then that changed. As you say, it's no secret that since then uh, Republicans have pandered on race in order to win votes. That's right. That's, the, that's right. the key to their strategy is you That's
1: right. It. I mean, I think it's important to understand. So, uh, so there's another term for dog whistle politics, and that's the Southern strategy. Right. That term was coined by a Republican senator, Jacob Javits, from New York, and he coined it not to endorse it but to condemn it. He said, he saw what was happening with the Republican Party in 1963 and 1964, and he says, you folks are pursuing a Southern strategy. This is going to be disastrous for the party. It's going to be disastrous for the country. And indeed, it has been. This use of race has allowed an extreme faction of conservatives, those most dedicated to, uh, to the power of big money, to the power of corporations, to not only hijack American democracy, but to hijack the Republican Party. And that's what's so democratically destructive. We have a political party that is um,
0: committed to gaining votes by increasing racial antagonism and racial fear. You write in your book that there was an important evolution in dog whistling under Democrats, including Bill Clinton. How so? So Democrats have
1: understood. They understood even as early as 1970 race was going to be an effective wedge issue against them. How did they decide to respond? Initially they decided they just waited out. They would distance themselves from minorities. They would try not to talk about race. And they thought that that would insulate them from these racially uh, provocative charges. That didn't work. So then they decided they'd try something different. Rather than confront dog whistle politics, they thought they'd embrace it. Now this isn't the same sort of egregious dog whistle politics as the Republicans. The Republicans early on realized that they could elect, get elected with white votes alone and didn't feel a particular need to reach out to minorities. Democrats have a different sort of calculus. They look around and they say, we don't think minority voters have anywhere to go because the Republicans are so hostile to minority voters. So we can slap them down a little bit. We can demonize them a little bit. But as long as every so often we show that we value them, they'll continue to vote for us. And so what you get under Democrats is a sort of moderated dog whistle politics. It's clearly trying to communicate to white voters, we too see minorities as a a threat and we're going to protect you. And at the same time, it's saying to minorities we value you and we want you to keep voting for us. And so we see that in the person of Bill Clinton and his presidency. Yes he distances himself from African Americans for example by criticizing Jesse Jackson but even more he embraces policies like ending welfare as we know it or ramping up Ronald Reagan's war on drugs and converting it into a general war on crime that really played to dog whistle whistle themes that said to white voters hey I'm a new Democrat. I too understand that minorities are a threat in your life because they're using welfare and the, 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 they're, they're dangerous criminals, and the state has been coddling them. And we're going to crack down
0: on them. But Ian, some people are going to respond by saying this is a, 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 a monotone of theory here. That, that that Bill Clinton was considered by many blacks to be the first black president, and they will also say crime was a problem in the, and not not just black crime, but crime was a problem in the in the 70s and 80s. And you just can't attribute all of that to race? I don't attribute all of it to race,
1: but I want to be very clear. There aren't just two alternatives here. Either it's all race or race has no effect whatsoever. In fact, what I'm saying is, yeah, there are complicated dynamics going on, but one of the central dynamics in American politics since the civil rights era has been the use of cultural provocations, primary among them race, but not exclusively, but the use of cultural provocations to try and advance... a a conservative agenda that favors tax cuts for the rich and that favors a deregulation of of big industry. In that context, Democrats had to decide how to respond. And when the Democrats responded, they responded not by contesting that politics, but instead by embracing it. And, And this is part of the story of Dog Whistle Politics. Republicans shift right, and the Democrats have tracked
0: rightward following them. You say you wrote this book, to restore an interrupted future. Explain that.
1: Well, so I think that this is an incredibly important story. We have levels of wealth inequality today we haven't seen in 100 years. Okay, what was happening 100 years ago? 100 years ago, we had corporate titans who mainly controlled government. What happened? Financial boom, financial collapse, the Great Depression, and then the New Deal. And what was the New Deal? The New Deal was a sense that government shouldn't be beholden to the most, to big money. That was incredibly popular. I think the New Deal taught the country that we could progress if we were all in this together and if the government were really on the side of the broad middle class, that the government had an incredibly important role in structuring the economy, in structuring politics, in structuring society in a way that favored everybody. And this was the New Deal, except it had a fatal flaw. The New Deal coalition depended in part on the Southern Democrats and the Southern Democrats were at this time avowedly a white man's party. And so the Southern Democrats extracted a compromise. They said they'll support the New Deal but only if it has certain limitations. If it doesn't help uh, black farmers, if it doesn't help uh, 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 black servants, if it doesn't help farm workers in the Southwest who are Mexican. If it helped whites. If it helped whites, they'd support it. And it did help whites. And this is why the New Deal was so, was so popular with whites. What happens? In 1964, because of the civil rights movement, Lyndon Johnson understands that a war on poverty to succeed should be extended to uh, an effort to promote racial justice. And, I, and he's right. This is the dream we need to pursue. And yet, this creates a window of opportunity. It creates the possibility for Republicans to come in and to to tell people, don't support the New Deal, don't support liberalism, because this isn't about helping people like you. This is about helping them, undeserving, lazy minorities. And that narrative works, and it works in a way, not just in a way that this has hurt minorities, but it works in a way that this has led to a, to a, a systematic dismantling of the New Deal, so that now 50 years after that politics started we have levels of wealth inequality we haven't seen since before the Great Re- D- Depression. Right? When I say that dog a politics is about pursuing a dream that's been interrupted what we're trying to recover is FDR and a second Bill of Rights. What we're trying to recover is New Deal liberalism but now a New Deal liberalism that isn't divided by race. We need to understand that the middle class is not a term that should have a racial signifier and that when we get rid of that signifier, when we understand that everybody of every race is a member of the middle class or should have the opportunity to become a member of the middle class, only then will we be at a political place where we can actually pull government back onto our side and we can defeat this sort of negative politics that keeps so many people voting to give control of government
0: over to the very wealthy. Where do... Latinos show up in this equation? You, for example.
1: I consider myself Latino and a person of color, but we should be clear, roughly half of all Latinos think they're white. Now, how does this play out in terms of dog politics? In very surprising ways. On the one hand, for the last decade, going back even further, but especially <coughs> for the last decade, anti-Latino Uh, campaigning, dog whistling has been a very powerful part of conservative politics. All the rhetoric about illegal aliens, uh, all of the rhetoric even that Mitt Romney used about self-deportation. Right. So you see that this has been really powerful in getting a lot of Republicans elected uh, in House elections all over the country. It's been powerful even in Republican national politics. Now... There's also a sense that Republicans lost in 2012 partly because Mitt Romney did so poorly among Latinos. So this has led to Republican operatives, especially at the national level, saying, we need to change our politics around immigration. We need to change our politics around Latinos. This opens up an interesting possibility. Not that they'll end dog whistle politics, but that they'll adjust it in a way that includes many Latinos who already think of themselves as white think about the census numbers. The census tells us that in 2010, the United States is almost 65% white. But it also tells us that whites will be a minority of the country in 2045. But that's only if Latinos aren't included as white. Uh If instead you include Latinos as white, then in 2045, whites will be 72% of the population. Or in other words, rather than being a minority in 2045, there'll be 7% more of the population than they are today.
0: So how would it play out? What would be the signal if you wanted to reach those Latinos who consider themselves white and are in the majority?
1: I'm not sure what the signal will be, but we should be clear that within immigrant communities, there's always a heterogeneity of views. And there's, there, as each generation gets established, there's always a segment of the population that looks with resentment on the new arrivals that says these people are holding our community down. Um, Maybe they're darker. Maybe they're less well educated. They're certainly poor. We really need to restrict immigration because only by restricting immigration can we show that we're actually now part of the American mainstream. So, Ironically, I would expect an effort to reach out to Latinos and to Asian communities not by uh liberal reforms of immigration, but actually by toning down some of the hostile rhetoric but at the same time promising to restrict immigration.
0: The Latino vote seems to be portable between the two parties, as I'm sure you know i I think that's
1: exactly right, so this is where I say. Dog whistle politics is going to evolve. Now, a lot of Democratic strategists are looking at these numbers. They're saying the Latino population is increasing. They're saying the Asian population is increasing. They're saying we don't need to worry about dog whistle politics anymore. Demography is going to solve this for us. That's a recipe for disaster because dog whistling is going to evolve. And if it has to evolve in a way that brings in certain portions of the Latino population, certain portions of the Asian population, that's what it's likely to do unless we start addressing this within minority communities, but also in terms of national politics, we should expect these sorts of racial provocations to continue to define our our politics for the next decade, two decades, three decades.
0: The book is Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. Ian Haney-Lopez, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much. At our website, BillMoyers.com, there's an excerpt from Ian Haney Lopez's superb book, Dog Whistle Politics. It will anger, inform, and make you want to read more. That's at BillMoyers.com. I'll see you there, and I'll see you here
2: next time. Moyers & Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Funding is provided by Ann Gumowitz. Encouraging the renewal of democracy. Carnegie Corporation of New York, celebrating 100 years of philanthropy and committed to doing real and permanent good in the world. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at MacFound.org. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Kohlberg Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman, and by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America, designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.